Let me invite you now to open your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew. It is a normal tradition for me to preach through biblical books, verse by verse, but sometimes we need to hone in and focus on certain things that the church does regularly, like baptize people and have the Lord's Supper, and explain to you in a, in a more detailed fashion exactly how these things convey to us the benefits of Christ. And so we're in the Gospel of Matthew. Excuse me, Matthew 28. Did I say 18? I did? Forgive me, that was wrong. What is often called the Great Commission... But hear now the word of the Lord, Matthew 28, verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And then look back at Matthew chapter 26, please. And today we'll just look at verses 26 through 28. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, And gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you, in my Father's kingdom. This is God's word. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we thank you for giving us your word. It is truly uh, a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, that you have exalted your word above your name. And we pray today that as we spend time thinking about baptism and the Lord's Supper, that you, by your Spirit, would give us enlightenment, that you would turn the lights on for us, you would illumine our minds, and that your Spirit would do surgery on our hearts, working in us that which is well-pleasing to you. And may everything that is said here exalt Jesus, and may it redound to your glory. For we know that your Word that comes forth from your mouth shall prosper where you send it and accomplish all that you desire. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And so if you're looking at your bulletin outline, we're going to talk about point two today, okay? Just point two. We're not going to talk about prayer. We're just going to talk about the sacraments. And for some of you to hear the word sacrament, you got a knee-jerk reaction to that. Because I didn't grow up a Presbyterian, by the way. I didn't like Presbyterians when I grew up much. I just like to beat them. That's what I liked. But I am one now, and Presbyterian, as I understand it, in Reformed theology has a unique way of understanding the Lord's Supper 
and baptism. Uh, Luther called them the bath, the bread, and the blood. And that was his shorthand for what we're talking about today. And the word sacrament is just a word like trinity. It is not in the Bible. By the way, do you know that? The word trinity, nowhere in the Bible. Okay, that is a word, a perfect word, threeness and oneness, tri, unity, trinity, is a great word to use. But the word sacrament is not in the Bible per se, but it is a Latin translation of a Greek word called mysterion, from which we get the word mystery. And so everything we're going to say today about baptism and the Lord's Supper is a mystery. At the heart of it is a mystery. More is going on than what we know when we come to the Lord's table. So some of my friends, and I grew up this way, understood both baptism and the Lord's Supper to sort of be a memorial, something you look back on, you think about Jesus, you celebrate the fact that he died on the cross, you feel really bad that he died on the cross for you, you are baptized, and that's, it all has to do with what's past. But as I grew in the faith and began to read the Bible more and more and study more and more, I came to the conclusion that there's a whole lot more going on than that. That what we do when we are baptized and what we do when we come to the Lord's table, more goes on, more happens. It has a present implication for living. Something happens when I come to this table. Something happens when I experience baptism. Also, it has a future implication for me because both point to something that is ultimate. And so we're talking in this series of messages about what are called the outward means of grace. As a friend of mine says, our gracious Lord is not playing catch me if you can with us. He wants us to be sure of him. He wants us to come to him and draw strength from him so that we can live fully for him. But he does not give himself to us in any old way he might, we might devise. He has made himself knowable and accessible in specific ways of his own wise choosing. He has appointed avenues of blessing that we call the means of grace. And they are outward means of grace. They are delivery systems, as it were, or conduits, or pipes, or channels through which the Lord conveys to us the benefits of redemption. And let's face it, right now, we only have a foretaste of our redemption. We do not experience fully in this life what our redemption is. But we grow in our understanding of it. We develop in our understanding of it. And one day, when Jesus comes and we're all transformed, caught up to be with him forever, entering into the consummation of all things in the new heaven and the new earth, we will experience fully what it means to be in union with Christ. But God has appointed in the Bible these things I'm going to talk about today as a way of communicating to us, as it were, His benefits, the benefits Christ one for us. The benefits of being in union with him. John chapter 15 talks about the vine and the branches and that we're organically connected to Christ by faith and that we draw from Christ the sap, as it were, of life. But these means are outward things that God uses to communicate to us what we so desperately want and need 
And that is more of Jesus, more of Christ, more of grace. And so the Westminster Shorter Catechism, uh, question 88 says, what are the outward means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption? And the answer is the outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption are his ordinances, especially the word, sacraments, and prayer, all which are made effectual to the believer for salvation. And so God does not limit himself to his wonderful means of grace. The Spirit blows where it will, but these are the ordinary ways in which God strengthens us spiritually. And so let's talk about this morning uh, the two sacraments, the Lord's Supper. We'll talk about sacraments in general, and then we're going to talk more specifically about baptism and the Lord's Supper. And if you listen fast enough, we'll get through it. All right, here we go. Among the means of grace uh, that are important, we've talked already about the preaching of the Word and the Word as a means of grace, and it is. And the Word is primary in that we understand about uh, baptism and the Lord's Supper because why? We have the Word, and the Word tells us about it. So Scripture has a lot to say about baptism and the Lord's Supper. Because baptism and the Lord's Supper are connected to, under the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, the rite of circumcision has been replaced by baptism, and the Lord's Supper replaces what? Passover. Passover. And so there's a connection between Old Testament and New Testament regarding these ordinances or sacraments. And so it's important for us to understand, first, let me just give you a definition of the sacrament. Sacraments are holy signs and seals of the covenant of grace immediately instituted by God to represent Christ and his benefits and to confirm our interest in him and also put a visible difference between those who belong to the church and the rest of the world and to solemnly engage them to the service of God in Christ according to his word. So we take this definition and I want to look at three simple things about this definition. We'll gather these ideas together and we can see the three main aspects of a sacrament which is a sign and seal of the covenant of grace. First, the three main aspects of a sacrament are signs that signify something. Divine action, how God uses the sacrament, and a means of divine presence. So in both baptism and the Lord's Supper, there are signs, there are divine actions. We don't do we are done unto, I guess is a better way to say. We don't do the sacraments, we receive the sacraments. Even when we take the Lord's Supper, I don't know if you notice this, I don't serve myself. I have one of the elders serve me the Lord's Supper. Why? Because I want to receive the sacrament. Okay, I don't take it for myself, I want to receive it. Okay, so let's, let's get further into these three things. Number one, sacraments are signs. That is, they are authoritative, divine communications. They are revelations, as it were, to us. And they symbolize the gospel, and they teach us authoritatively what the gospel is. They teach us not by words, but by pictures. 
visible words. And so it's important to understand that they teach us not by words, but by pictures and by actions. In baptism, not only do we hear about our clean, uh, cleansing, but we see and feel it depicted dramatically uh, in the baptism. In the supper, not only do we hear about Jesus' death for us, but we see his body given for us, and we taste, smell, and touch it. As the reformers used to say, sacraments are visible words. And John Calvin, in talking about the sacrament, says God provides those for us, not because we're strong, but because we're weak. He brings them to us in our weakness. And uh, if you ever get a chance to read Calvin on the sacraments, you could have a feast. Uh, it is an ama amazing thing, and I was tempted just to tell you what he said, but I want to be more comprehensive than that. And so, the sacraments are... They supplement the Word of God by divinely authorized dramatic images. So the fullness of divine teaching is by both Word and sacrament. Second, the sacraments are actions of God on our behalf. The sacrament is not just our doing something in God's presence. It is His doing something for us. He is really there. He's really acting. For one thing, the sacraments are not only signs, but they are seals. I heard Paul talking about this in class. When you talk about a seal here, we're not talking about something that claps and barks. We're talking about, <laughs> we're talking about um, a seal, like something on your birth certificate. I, a few years ago, uh, renewed my passport or reapplied for my passport. And I had to have a birth certificate. Well, I had a birth certificate, but it looked like an x-ray. I don't know, you know, I'm old. Okay, give me a break. It was, it, the writing was in white and everything else was in black. And it looked like an x-ray. Well, there's my, I've used that birth certificate my whole life. It's gotten me into everything I've ever needed for a birth certificate. So I go to the post office here in Las Vegas. Guess what? It's not official. Why is it not official? Because it doesn't have the seal on it. It doesn't have the seal. That's what they're looking for, the seal. To authenticate to demonstrate the validity and the genuineness of that. And so, when we talk about a seal here, we're talking about something like a government seal on your birth certificate, which makes it official that you are citizens of the country with all the rights and privileges appertaining. Baptism and the Lord's Supper are seals of God's covenant of grace with us in Christ as Abraham's circumcision was the seal of the righteousness of his faith, Romans 4.11. As seals, sacraments confirm and guarantee the covenant promises. In this respect, uh, they are visible words. As the word of God guarantees the promises of God, so do the sacraments. Therefore, as the confession says, they separate us from the world, locating us in the people of God. And thirdly, as far as the definition of a sacrament goes, they are locations of God's presence. That is implicit in what's already been said. If God is doing something for us and through the sacrament, then he is, of course, present. 
And it's a wonderful blessing to be in the presence of God. So Paul speaks of the Lord's Supper as a communion of the body and blood of Christ. 1 Corinthians 10, 16. The word translated communion is participation. It's koinonia. It's fellowship. So when I come to the Lord's table and I take the bread and I eat the bread, and I take the cup, and I drink the cup. I am participating in something. I am engaged in something that is bigger than I am, but it is a deep way of fellowshipping with Jesus to come to the table. It is the deepest fellowship we experience this side of his presence. And so, in his intimate presence, God helps us to grow in faith. And uh, the process is not automatic. Uh, Roman Catholics, our friends who are Roman Catholics, understand that a sacrament uh, is something that happens automatically. It happens ex operare operato, that is from the very act of participating in the sacrament. But the scripture teaches, no, our growth comes through the presence of Christ by his spirit dealing with us personally. So the effectiveness of the sacrament is always by faith alone. All right? Now we know what a sacrament is, right? If I gave you a test, you'd ace it, right? Really easy. Now, let's talk about baptism. Let's think about baptism specifically. And listen to this definition of baptism. Baptism is the sacrament of the New Testament ordained by Jesus Christ not only for the solemn admission of the party baptized into the visible church, but also to be unto him a sign and seal of the covenant of grace, of his ingrafting into Christ, of regeneration, that is being born again, of remission of sin, sending our sins away, of giving up unto God through Jesus Christ to walk in newness of life. What, which sacrament is by Christ's own appointment to be continued in his church until the end of the world. So in this statement, we see three things. I'm big on the three things today. Trinitarian stuff is happening up here. Okay. <laughs> First, baptism is a rite of entrance into the visible church. Just as a person takes an oath of citizenship to become an American citizen years ago, I went to a, um, what do they call that, where you have an oath of citizenship? It's uh, nationalization or something like that. Yeah. And Paul Anka was there. And I was there because they called me uh, to pray at this event. And I only got called once. I must have prayed too long. <laughs> must have prayed too much. But I was caught up in the moment, couldn't help it. I wasn't going to give you no stale, uh, objective prayer. I was preaching Jesus through my prayer. But anyway, Paul Anka, he's a Canadian citizen at that time, and he was becoming an American citizen. And it was a very moving ceremony. It just, I was patriotic. I had goosebumps. I was singing uh, the national anthem in my heart, not out loud. But I think we sang a song at this too, but it was great. It was wonderful. And that's what baptism is. It gives us the right to be recognized as Christians unless we get excommunicated. Thus, it gives us the right to be part of the great work that God is doing in the church. As an administrative of the covenant, baptism is a sign and seal, as we talked about earlier. And it represents cleansing, repentance, and union with Christ. 
Cleansing, like the Old Testament ceremonial washings, is a requirement for entering God's presence. You remember in the tabernacle there was a laver, a place to wash, to cleanse, before you could enter God's presence. And so baptism is a cleansing rite. Uh, it is a washing. In this case, it symbolizes cleansing from sin. Not everybody who's baptized, sadly, is clearly forgiven from sin or cleanse. But that's what baptism symbolizes. That's what it pictures. As a sacrament, it pictures the gospel. And the gospel is about the forgiveness of sins. Scripture does not say that, as some do, that baptism is the new birth or that our forgiveness comes through baptism, but it pictures forgiveness so that people who are baptized as well and those who witness the ceremony will know what the gospel says. God offers cleansing and forgiveness in Christ. You know what's the matter with some of you? The biggest problem you got right now? You need to be forgiven. You need your sins washed. You need to be cleansed. You, like me, before Christ, have a dirty soul. And that sin lays heavy upon us. And you need your sins washed away. You need the truth that the baptism symbolizes. The forgiveness of sins. That's the greatest blessing. I once read a book years ago by a guy named Menninger who was uh, working in mental health profession. And he made an audacious statement. I don't know if it's true or not, but it sounded good. But he said this, he said, if 90% of the people in this building could understand what forgiveness in Jesus Christ really means, they could go home. 90%. You see, it's huge. We were not made to carry the guilt. We were not made to carry the shame. It destroys us. It is a burden to our souls. And the wonderful thing is there is free forgiveness in Jesus. It's free, cost him everything, cost us nothing. But it's there for us. Excuse me, uh, preaching broke out while I'm teaching. All right, number two. <laughs> Baptism represents repentance as in the early ministry of John. If you want to know about baptism, look at the baptism of Jesus. Everything that happens to Jesus in his baptism happens to him in our place. Therefore, he undergoes the baptism of repentance, not for his sin, but for mine. And then the father approves and says to his son, You are my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. And the Holy Spirit, in the form of a dove, came down and lit upon him. Baptism represents, Jesus represents for us all of that in our baptism. So, the gospel says, God offers cleansing and forgiveness. Second, baptism represents repentance. For we must recognize that we are in need of God's cleansing, that we are sinners. When an adult is baptized, he confesses his own sin and turns from it and asks God uh, for forgiveness. In churches where infants are baptized, the parents make this confession on behalf of their children. Repentance is, is something that God works in us and it represents the demands of God's law upon us. Third, baptism symbolizes union with Christ. We are baptized into the name. We, you saw that in Matthew 28. We are baptized into the name of the Trinity. Some people are bothered about whether or not their baptism is official. Well, let me tell you something right quick. There ain't no man I know anywhere 
that's holy enough to baptize you. It isn't the person baptizing you. It's the name. Are you baptized into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? That's huge. And that is what baptism, in essence, is about. Let me go on further with it. Uh, in Romans 6 and a number of other passages, Paul says we have been baptized with Christ in his death and in his resurrection, dying with him to sin, rising with him to new life. So Paul many times speaks of Christians being in Christ. This doctrine of union with Christ is that uh, something we have looked at through this series. We are baptized into the Spirit. Christ baptizes us with the Spirit. And when we've been talking about baptism as a sign, it is also a seal. God's confirmation that we belong to the covenant. Again, baptism is a name-giving ceremony. Placing the name of God on us as the high priest placed the name of God on Israel in the book of Numbers. On the basis of this seal, we are admitted into the visible church. And baptism does not give us eternal salvation. As I said before, uh, baptized people sometimes do betray the Lord and walk away. And when they do, they receive the curses of the covenant rather than the blessings of the covenant. But baptism is more than a mere symbol or a sign. It is something that that, uh, of God placing his name on on you his name your name is written in his hands and his name is placed on you you are a marked man or woman through baptism now the mode of baptism that is how do we do it do we pour do we immerse do we sprinkle do we do it three times forward three times backward you know remember benny hen when he I don't want to bash people too much, but him, I don't mind taking a swing at. And the reason I don't mind taking a swing at old Benny is because Benny believed there were nine people in the Trinity. Confronted with it, he sort of seemed like for a minute he was going to back off and then recalibrated and emphasized it even more. But let me tell you something. Baptism, the mode, is not of the essence of baptism. And I'm going to cut this short. I'm not going to go into big explanation. You want to know more, ask me. I'll bury you in information. But I believe baptism is rightly administered through pouring or sprinkling. But I also believe immersion is a valid form of baptism. I don't think it's a necessary form of baptism. I think somebody who's been poured or sprinkled on. Because the Bible uses baptizo and all the nouns and verbs associated with that Greek word, which was transliterated, not translated, uh, for the purpose of indicating Uh, different things for example when they accused Jesus of his disciples not washing their hands guess what they used baptisma now I'm pretty sure when they washed the hands they didn't get the whole body in there did they be kind of hard to do Uh, they had unclean hands but anyway the mode but the subjects is also another issue and because we're in the reformed tradition we do practice infant baptism, but I'm going to avoid that this morning and go straight to the Lord's Supper. And don't call me a coward, because I talk about it all the time. You know I do, all right? I hear somebody say, you coward, you should talk about it. Don't have time. You need to listen faster. Lord's Supper. If baptism is the sacrament of initiation and entrance given only once, 
The Lord's Supper is the sacrament of continuing fellowship with God and is to be received over and over again. Our Lord Jesus, in the night wherein he was betrayed, instituted the sacrament of his body and blood called the Lord's Supper to be observed in his church unto the end of the world for the perpetual remembrance of the sacrifice of himself and his death, the sealing uh, all benefits thereof unto true believers, their spiritual nourishment and growth in him, and their further engagement in all the duties which they owe to him, and to be a bond and pledge of their communion with him and with each other, like baptism. This ordinance is instituted by Christ for us to observe perpetually until the last day. It has a past, present, and future reference. I've already said that. We look in the past and remember his death. And to the present, we receive nourishment. We feed upon Christ. And to the future, we anticipate His coming and remember the Lord's death until He comes. Our present nourishment comes by feeding on Christ and by a closer relationship with others in the body. Notice, when we think about uh, the Lord's Supper, the reference is not only to communion with Him, but also with each other as members of His body. So the Lord's Supper is a means of grace, a way in which God equips us to better serve Him. Now, a couple of important things about this. Um, when Jesus spoke in the Gospels and said, This is my body. He cannot have meant that the bread and wine on the table were his literal body, for his literal body was behind the table, not on it. Let me repeat that. The place in the gospel where Jesus says, this is my body, there's no way he could have meant that the bread and wine on the table were his literal body, for his literal body was behind the table, not upon it. Rather, what he plainly meant was this bread and wine represent my body and my blood. It's like a professor pointing to a map and saying, this is France. He doesn't mean that the map is literally France, but that that picture represents the country of France. Now, the most serious error in this view, however, is that it represents the Lord's Supper, that is the Catholic view, is a continuing sacrifice, and Scripture is clear that there's no continuing sacrifice, and there can never be. Jesus' atonement is final. It is finished. It is done. It is complete. There is no other sacrifice for sins. It needs no continuation, repetition, or supplementation. Now, the Lutheran view is a little bit different. I'll just hit it quickly. They believe that Christ's body is in, with, and under the sacrament, something called consubstantiation, not transubstantiation. They believe in the ubiquity of the human nature of Christ, which means not only is Christ's spirit present everywhere, uh, but the body is present everywhere, can be. I don't believe that. I believe the body is localized at the right hand of the Father. And so... Uh, there's, there's more going on uh, than just the change of the bread and the wine into something else. It is a means of grace. Christ is present in the Spirit. So we participate in His body and blood, as Paul says. We feed on Him, as Jesus teaches in John chapter 6. These benefits come by faith alone. 
The physical body of Christ is in heaven, not on earth. And that's something to jump up and down about. The glorified humanity. Christ came down, took our humanity upon himself, glorified it. And now it's standing, serving, ascended to the right hand of the Father, and will one day come back. Which means what? He's going to redo the whole cosmos. He's going to redeem everything that he created in the first place. And that's glorious. But is, when we take the bread, it's not his physical body. When we take the cup, it's not his physical blood. Just wanted to be clear on that. Now, something I want to talk about as quickly as I can, table fellowship. And uh, rather not end in controversy, would rather say something positive. And I think it's unfortunate that the sacraments have become such a source of battle in the church. It seems sometimes they're more a cause for warfare than they are blessings to God's people. So as we close, I want to think about the richness of the blessings God has given us in the Lord's Supper. And that is the gift of table fellowship. Table fellowship. What were the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious teachers and the lawyers and the scribes most upset with Jesus about? who he ate with, who he, who he sat down to the table with. Why were they so upset about? Because these people are the real sinners. They're the marginalized. They're the outcasts. They're the big sinners with the capital S. They have big, fat, juicy, technicolor sins. And God would never sit. Sin cannot be in the presence of holy God. God would never sit at the table with sinners. And yet that was Jesus' practice. Table fellowship with what? Sinners. You better thank God for that. Otherwise, you have none. But table fellowship. You know what it says? When you invite somebody to your home, even now. I mean, we use celebrations often to have a meal together. You know, and I don't mean overstuff yourself and, you know, get tryptophan and fall asleep. I'm not talking about that. But... <laughs> But I'm talking about like at a wedding, sometimes people serve food. At important moments in our life, we celebrate with what? Food. And we invite people, and what that says to the person I invite is I accept you. I invited you because I wanted you here. And I want to enjoy you, and I want to interact with you, and I want to have fellowship with you, and I want to know you. And that is exactly what happens in this meal. Exactly what happens. Oh, our theology of the Lord's Supper is so anemic and so weak because we don't understand what's going on and what God is saying to us at this meal. In Scripture, even in the Old Testament, table fellowship with God is a very important aspect of covenant blessing. When two people were at odds with each other and they needed to be reconciled, reconciliation can surely be superficial. But when it's deep and profound and when it's complete reconciliation, not only do you want to become friends again with your former enemy, but you want to have him to dinner. That happens at least six times in the ancient Near East in the Old Testament. Now the fall has made us enemies of God. God provided food for Adam and Eve before the fall. But they abused that privilege, taking uh, the one fruit that he had kept them from. But through Christ, he seeks reconciliation with us. And that reconciliation is so deep and so complete that it invites us to share meals with him. As Mark Anderson often prays at our Lord's Supper, it's not a snack. It's a meal. Because you are feasting upon the bread of life. You are being nourished by him. 
God provides food for Noah and his family, invites them to eat the flesh of animals as well as the fruit of the garden. Sorry, all you people that don't eat meat. I'm sorry. But there it is. Give me a rib any day. Uh, when, when God redeemed the children of Israel from Egypt, he gave them a sacramental meal called the Passover as a memorial of their salvation and their covenant with God. When Israel meets with God at Mount Sinai on the day of assembly, God made a covenant with them as his people, and he called the 70 elders up to the mountain to eat and drink with him. The tabernacle offerings were offerings for food, bread, and flagons of wine were kept on the table in the tabernacle and in the temple. And the peace offering in the Old Testament, part of the peace offering was consumed and offered to God. Part of it fed the priest, and the last of it was fed upon by the people. And so coming to this table is ex the experience of the ultimate reconciliation. That's an expression of what's happening here. So a first century Jew would not have been surprised at all to hear that the Lord's Supper was the new covenant in Jesus' blood. Whenever we take the supper, as when Israel took the Passover and other meals, we renew our covenant relationship with God as well uh, as with others. And so, the experience of the Lord's Supper is something beautiful. So when we take the Lord's Supper, we should reflect on the past, the present, and the future. We should remember Christ in his death, thanking him for our complete salvation. You go back to Calvary, you go back and you look at the Lord of glory, and you see him bearing in his own body, not just sin, but your sin. My sin. It's personal. Bearing in his body our sins upon the tree, Peter says. Becoming a curse for us, because cursed is everyone who dies on a tree, Galatians says. There upon the cross, he did that. You think about that. You meditate on that. You let that walk across your heart and find a place to sit in your heart. But you also, in the present, you feed upon Christ. John Calvin said it this way. He said, since Christ is in his human body. And he's not here physically in the supper. The Holy Spirit of God in this as we come in faith and receive the elements that are signs and seals of God's gracious covenant. The Holy Spirit lifts us up as it were to feed upon Jesus. Amen. Feeding upon Jesus. That's where spiritual strength comes in. Now, you ask me, Pastor Tim, why do we do it every Sunday? I mean, I went to a church growing up, did it four times a year, and I always hated to see the hardware come out for the Lord's Supper because I knew it was going to be 15 minutes long. And boy, did I hate church. I hated church. I told you there were bricks in my auditorium. I counted those bricks. Now, I don't know if the preacher was good and bad or bad. I don't know that. All I know is I was lost and dead in sin, and Jesus meant nothing to me. Nothing. He was interesting, but he meant nothing to me. But the wonderful thing is, as I began to look at this more deeply, then I said, well, you know, most Reformed churches do it quarterly. Some do it once a month. If, if what the Bible says about what happens 
at the Lord's Supper is really true, how can I not want it every Sunday? I want the preaching of the Word every Sunday. And if baptism wasn't the rite of initiation that you do only once, I'd want that every Sunday. But we do that through confession of sin and assurance of pardon. But I want to feed upon Jesus. Because I'm weak. I need spiritual strength. I need empowerment, so do you. So when we take the Lord's Supper, we not only think about the past. The Supper is called Thanksgiving. That's where we get the word Eucharist. You know, I used to read the word Eucharist and think, oh, that's some liberal or Catholic whatever word. I've heard them use it. And uh, I said, you don't need to use that word until I was translating a passage in which Eucharista was used. And you know what Eucharista means? It's, made, it's a compound word. E-U of Eucharist means good. And the last part of it is charis, which means what? Grace. Eucharist is to speak well of grace. It is thanksgiving for God's grace. So that word became a good word to me, right? You know, everybody that died before us weren't dummies or idiots. We have a, C.S. Lewis called it chronological snobbery. That if any, you know, anybody that's 15 years older than me don't know nothing. Uh, you know what? <laughs> I remember when I thought my father was the dumbest man on planet Earth. The dumbest man. I thought he was Archie Bunker. And I would get in arguments with him all the time. And then, you know, as I got older, he started becoming smarter. And as I got really older before he died, he's the smartest man I ever knew. Smartest man I ever knew. Listen, we got a lot to learn. Anybody else hot beside me? Just me, huh? All right, we're about done. So we need spiritual nourishment from Christ. As John tells us, we eat his flesh, we drink his blood. By eating and drinking, we participate in his body and blood. We sense a greater union with him. Calvin, who emphasized that Christ is not physically present in the supper, but lives physically in heaven, thought the supper was not so much Jesus coming down to us, but our being caught up in heaven to be with him, because we're already seated in heavenly places. Think about that for a while. And then, as we eat and drink, we need to have a future orientation of the wedding supper of the Lamb. What's that going to be? That's going to be feast. That's going to be the ultimate table fellowship. And so these outward means of grace do something to you if you come in faith. Stuff happens to you as you come in faith. They're not, you know, I know people that don't practice the Lord's Supper at all. I know religions or Christian organizations that don't practice the sacraments at all. What are they thinking? I mean, I love them, and I know I've been ignorant about stuff, and I'm still ignorant about stuff, but for heaven's sakes, this is one of the greatest blessings we will ever know this side of heaven. This is the closest fellowship we will ever experience with him until he comes back. So that's why we do it. And I'm fired up about it because it's good stuff. You can quote me on that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you today for both baptism and the Lord's Supper. Because of what they point to, what they mean, what they say to us, that baptism places your name on us. We belong to you. 
We are your beloved sons, adopted sons, in whom you are well pleased because we're united with Jesus. You have placed your spirit within us and caused us to walk in newness of life. We thank you for the Lord's table, for the Eucharist, for the coming and feeding upon Jesus, for remembering his death, for anticipating with great joy the final day in which we will feast with him forever. Now, Father, as we continue to worship you, may we give as people who are overwhelmed by just how much you love us. In Jesus Christ, and we pray in his name, amen.